Prince Remembered from The Current. Hey, it's Andrea Swenson. While making Prince the story of 1999, I got a chance to sit down with Prince's longtime drummer, Bobby Z. Prince and Bobby first met back in the mid-70s when they were still teenagers, and Bobby would go on to become drummer for the revolution. This is our full conversation. Hi, I'm Bobby Z. I started with Prince in the very beginning and became the drummer for the revolution. I would love to start with a little bit of chatting about pre-1999, setting the stage for where Prince was at at this point in his career around Dirty Mind coming out, Mm -hmm. the Dirty Mind tour. I get the sense that it was just a really exciting moment as, you know, you think about playing in New York and all of a sudden Mick Jagger's there and Mm -hmm. there's all these kind of uh, signs that maybe something is brewing, that a crossover moment might be brewing for Prince. Can you start by sharing a few thoughts on, you know, that era of his career? Well, I mean, if we look at the leap from the second album to Dirty Mind, it's a big leap. And I think that was probably the biggest leap of all when he figured out who he wanted to be in more of a rebellious way. The main thing is Dirty Mind was, as you said, was exciting from a standpoint of people started to like popcorn, they started to pop up and go, wow, there's something going on here. But at the same time, the music business was quite separated as far as what was promoted. So there was kind of the white rock part of, in this case, Warner Brothers Records, and then there was the black department, as they called it then. And Dirty Mind was challenging for the R&B department at that time. First of all, the album cover itself what he was wearing on the album cover itself, and the lyrical content, not all of it, of course. Do It All Night's probably the funkiest song one of them he ever wrote, but Sister and Head. And, mm-hmm. You know, these were going against traditional values that still had a very much a core of R&B. Gospel was based out of that, grown out of that. So there was um, kind of a strange reception, but of course he knew that. He was shooting the arrow right into the heart of that, what happened was between the leap between the first and second album that I'm describing was his look to Europe and especially London with Susie and the Banshees and especially Adam and the Ants and Steve Strange and these people that were dressing completely wild. Mm-hmm. And he really got into that. Adam and the Ants, especially the early videos, some of the earliest videos on MTV were Adam and the Ants and they were really big in London. So that affected him greatly. Do you remember Mm -hmm. the first time you played in the bikini briefs? Yes. Well, it all kind of started. The 80s fashion was really kind of mixed up because when I met Prince and Andre, they were both wearing like shorts over leg warmers. That was kind of this look. And then as we experimented, there's some really outrageous costumes on the first tour. I mean, a tank top and ties without shirts. And, you know, Andre and Prince were much more into the fashion of, you know, Andre wore plastic pants. And and Prince, it was a um, zebra bikini brief, right? So it would be around the midnight special. And so it wasn't what I consider the Frankenfurter version (laughs) of the black with the stockings, if you think about it. Just pause and think about it. <laughs> he was a master at taking bits of pop culture, right? So 
Rocky Horror Picture Show, we saw mm-hmm. a lot, just like everybody. It's kind of a strange phenomenon, Rocky Horror Picture Show, how it was allowed in like this purist white culture to see this extremely homosexual movie, you know, with strange plot and bizarre music. And somehow it was a cult phenomenon that people just went to. But it's one of those pigeonhole things. So the black bikini was really stepped out, of course, in Dirty Mind in what we know now. So the whole look, you know, the whole everything, my point being is we, we went to Europe. There, everything is different. You know, the, the integration of people, the racial integration, the thought integration, the freedom. You know, there was people with blue spiked mohawks back then, and they were, you know, polite. And it was just a completely different mindset to what we think as punk rock, you mm-hmm. know, that came out of CBGBs and the violence and the mosh pitting and all that stuff, you know. So I think Prince was very excited about the reception in London, Paris, and Amsterdam at the Paradiso, those first three shows. He was kind of had a real positive outlook on Dirty Mind, which coming off the Rich show you mentioned in New York and, you know, Mick Jagger and David Bowie, Andy Warhol, Gene Simmons, you know, I mean, it was and a day after Lennon was shot, too. It was very, mm. very intense. You know, it was just really intense. But juxtaposition, all that comes crashing down now at the Rolling Stone show at the Coliseum. So all of this buildup, all of this positive goodwill, celebrity notice, people going, wow, this guy's really something special. This is what rock and roll is all about. On one hand, obviously it wasn't ready for the mainstream. And Stones fans were groomed for a decade already or two to be Stones fans, you know, they're kind of bred like that. And they go to these shows and they want the Stones, but these were marathons back then. You know, we went on at two in the afternoon Mm. and then it was George Thorogood and then it was Jake Isles and then it was the Stones. So it's a big day for people. So it's festival. So you just, you're in, you're crammed against the front of the Coliseum and you're waiting for the Stones from 6 a.m. And Bill Graham comes out and goes, okay, we're going to start the show. And then people are going, you know, they're peaking or whatever they are, and it's time for the Stones. But instead, they get Prince. And whether it was the falsetto or it was the costuming that we were talking about or whatever it was, or the combination of all of the above, I think, it just didn't hit people right. And we all know the story. So he ultimately now has this kind of, I mean, it was just the struggle to get a record deal and the struggle for the first album was so monumental. And now here we are, three albums in, the controversy tour is about to start. Mm-hmm. Relatively short period of time after the Stones, six weeks or something. Right, yeah. So you have this six weeks where you just, for me, after all of that time, I'm just wondering, wow, Where's he going to be, you know? But what we know now is like the beginning of the leapfrog, what I call the leapfrog, which was like when we went out on the Purple Rain tour, the last night of rehearsal before the Purple Rain tour, we put the finishing touches on Around the World in a Day. Mm. It was done. Wow. So during this period of time after the Stones, in my opinion, probably the most prolific time. So what he did was he took the frustration, anger. Uh, I think he thought that since Mick Jagger and everybody, you know, that it would just all kind of be there. 
And it, it's very interesting how Controversy as a song was a tongue-in-cheek. He knew that everybody was talking about him, you know, is he black or white or straight or gay? I mean, he knew all this stuff. But he's still, at the same time, everybody wants approval and acceptance. So he's, he was on the razor's edge. He was always on the razor's edge. Mm -hmm. And th this is an example. So what he does is he figures it out after all this Rick James touring and now all this Rolling Stones. Because the Rolling Stones had a crossover with Miss You that went back into R&B or, right. or disco. Right. And that, you know, I mean, disco was ending. And out of the end of disco, it was like everybody was doing it. It's like every record has a rap now. I mean, like everybody was doing it, right? Queen was doing it, you know, Another One Bites the Dust, The Stones were doing it, Miss You. And, you know, these records were big and they were crossing over and it opened up an audience. And I think it was a portal that Prince was able to open up. So what he did was he figured out, well, I'll just give this white rock audience a little red Corvette. That's meat over there. And then what I'm going to do over here is I'm going to take whatever's left of this punk, funk, disco movement, whatever Earth, Wind and Fire did, whatever everybody did, and I'm gonna wrap it up into one little word, and that word is party. Because party and and all that stuff, you know, the remnants of the disco era and all this stuff. And on 1999, he gives a little speech at the end where he goes, party, and he says, that's right party. And when he says, that's right, that means, yep, I'm saying it, I'm taking it, and you're all coming with me. So he built his rock audience, and then he dazzled people with his dancing on the video for Corvette. And then 1999, he showed this multiracial band in a full-blown 80s pancake makeup, white light setting that was festive and fun with still frames. And boom, boom, left, right. I call him Muhammad Ali rock and roll. Right there he had it. You know, he had everybody pretty much praising him and going this record. Then, of course, the first song I heard was Let's Pretend We're Married, which just mm. completely knocked me out. The horn sound was completely refined. When people talk about the Minneapolis sound, it's Let's Pretend We're Married. Because he took the synthesizer horns and he made them sound so crisp, clean, powerful, that that gave him what Count Basie had, what the great bands had, powerful horn sections, whatever Glenn Miller, whatever was happening, it was all about horns. And Prince did it on 1999. He had a little bit of a let's work earlier, right. but let's pretend we're married, the crisp power of it. He really had the whatever the next generation of synths was happening at that time, the Pearl Syncussion tom-toms on top of the LM1 drum machine, on top of real drums. Now it was kind of like... Drums were octopus stuff. Now it was, you know, it was part of the art form. It didn't have to be playable as a human until I had to play it as a human <laughs> <laughs> live. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Darling Nikki was that one. Do you think it's fair to say, you know, thinking about the span of, what was it, in two months that the Times, what time is it comes out? Vanity 6 comes out and then 1999 comes on. Oh, do you think it's fair to say that the Minneapolis sound was kind of cemented in that year? In that basement studio at the Purple House on Lake Riley. So let's talk about it. So we had like six weeks. We, you know, I didn't go there for like a week and, you know, after the Rolling Stones thing, and then he calls me up. And I go out there, and we put the uh, Pearl Concussion Toms on Corvette, the, you know, dooch, and the bombs on 1999 that are so iconic. 
Then he plays me Let's Pretend We're Married. And then he starts playing me this other stuff that's, you know, Morris, Morris's group. And it's just like, okay, you know, and this is Vanity's group. And so he, when I said it was the most prolific time, because it was just whatever energy came out of that Stones thing, and he didn't sleep. And that was the beginning of the spark and the ignition that pretty much followed him through the rest of his career. And he just was on fire. And it was song after song, all the outtakes you hear on the box set, just endless amounts of recording, mixing, to the point where they had to decipher the, the boxes, you know, because he was moving so fast. He would erase tape, he would do tape. It was just so much action going on there that he created all these entities out of that, yeah. Could you describe the Lake Riley house? Yeah, it started out when I was working for Owen as the delivery driver for the ad company. When they were in Sausalito making the first album, they said, well, find him a house. So he was living on Blaisdell in an apartment. And there was like starting to be bulletin board places, like apartment referral services. There was nothing online, of course. So I found a house on France Avenue. And it was Edina. You know, and right off 50th in France. Yeah, it's I crazy thought, to think about. you know, I lived in St. Louis Park. It was closer to me because now I wasn't even going in the office anymore. You know, my I was just like, oh, just go get them. It was turning into complete time vampire stuff. And the house in Edina was a good and a bad idea because the, <laughs> the neighbors were older people that had lived in these homes for years. And the, all of a sudden there's kind of young wild animals kind of at volumes all hours of the night. The police were there a lot, so that didn't work. So then, I believe after Owen, then Perry and Tony came. Perry and Tony were the road managers for Twitter Fire. And uh. this is before Cavallo. Cavallo sent these guys, and they actually said they were our managers for a while. They didn't know that they weren't until Steve Farnoli showed up later. And that was good. Because I love these guys, but three scotches on a 30-minute flight and, you know, 95 miles an hour to the airport was a little bit harrowing. So they found a house on Lake Minnetonka, the first one. And that was a rental. And uh, that was the Dirty Mind House, where very unorthodox recording. uh, I believe it was 16-track, 1-inch. And um, now he was starting to break the norms. If you look at these Beatles sessions and go back, I mean, the engineers wore lab coats. The engineers could touch the knobs and you couldn't touch the knobs. Everything about recording was prim proper and etiquette and everybody had their lace. Well, you know, I think Prince broke a a million rules as far as unorthodox recording. And uh, Dirty Mind was was that, where the cables were just everywhere and the drums were just kind of mic'd in a certain way that gave it the incredible sound. But most engineers would scoff at this. So that house was a rental. And then they got him a house when Farnoli bought a home on Lake Riley. And it was an upstairs-downstairs, split level. It wasn't purple. It was just brown. And the front door came in. There was like a window to the side of the door. Sometimes he'd peek out if he'd see you coming. And then you'd just kind of go upstairs into the kitchen or to the left where the TV was and beanbag chairs and stuff like that. We watched all these movies. But then you'd go down and then take a left, and it was kind of a, a control room smaller than Studio A at Paisley, but Westlake audio speakers, and uh, a, kind of a thin control room, but nice. And adjacent to that was kind of a small live room that he had a drum kit in. That's where Mark Brown actually auditioned in that little mm. live room. And it really 
proved to be exactly what he needed, which was a good board, good speakers. Don Batts was, was still at the helm, and he was a super technician. He just knew everything. They had some grounding issues there, you know, some hums and stuff, but Don figured everything out. And they got levels right, and it, it was just magic. You know, later on, he painted it purple, or even much later on, maybe when he was, wasn't even living there or his dad was there or something. And purple wasn't, you know, purple rain yet. But it's forever where we hung out and watched so many movies and, and, and spent so much time, again, dreaming. It started out in my Pinto, but we were continued dreaming. And uh, it was really a fun, comfortable place for him. We shot a lot of pictures there, the, the 1999 posters, the famous bedroom shot there. And... Uh, the poster that was for sale, and uh, out back, eventually, by the lake, we, we shot even some of the tour book photos for uh, Purple Rain with Nancy Bo. You mentioned purple, and, you know, I think about your theory with the shiny purple trench coat and the song Purple Music emerged during this time. Is this the first time that purple was starting to be associated with Prince? Yes. The purple trench coat, as we discussed on the liner notes, we were all in kind of these clothes from tatters at that point. We were digging through barrels. That was the first kind of custom-made stage clothes. You know, purple is a very unusual thing because there was a famous band in Minneapolis, as you know, since your book, Purple Haze, which had a huge impact on all of those guys, Morris, Andre, you know, my brother David at ASI recording. Purple Haze was kind of the S, you know? I mean, they, they were the... Yeah. They were at the flame, and we'd go see them, and, you know, it was a show. And it was something definitely to strive to. And then there's, of course, Jimi Hendrix. Mm -hmm. you know? So, and then there, there's America with Ventura Highway, you know, where he says Purple Rain, if you listen to that. Mm. So there's always clues and stuff around, if you want to look, that entered the psyche. But it was a natural fit. Minnesota, I mean, it's, ironically, we're a purple state politically. Our football team is purple. You know, there's a lot of, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg with Prince, you know. The purple belonged to him, and he claimed it, but it was always there. Certainly purple music. You can take a bite of my purple rock. You know, I mean, it's all kind of led up to that moment. Purple trench coats, it was just bound to be purple rain. <laughs> right. Can you talk a little bit about, I love your theory about this shiny purple trench coat and the shifting to show business after mm. these years in punk rock. Can you just kind of summarize? Yeah, you know, I mean, for, for so long, we like in the early days, just the costume budgets aren't there. You know, I mean, you, if you owe Warner Brothers Records money and you're trying to make another record and you're trying to build a band. But of course, he had this vision. I, I believe he single-handedly launched Victoria's Secret's ideology by singing and talking about putting women in lingerie and having them front it and do it in the Vanity Six show and obviously Apollonia Six. I mean, there's just something really Prince-like about all that, that it was like cool and accepted. And you can walk around in that. And that was his thing about, you know, there's no such thing as stage clothes and offstage clothes. When I auditioned, when I finally... My final audition was at Williams Pub, and I was playing with, I believe, Barry Goldberg and the Highway 52 band. It was Kevin Odegaard that morphed into that band. And I did a drum solo on a song called Mad Boy, 
and that sealed it. It was it was a good night, and I sat down with Andre and Prince, and um, again, I had to make sure that their table was ready, because, you know, if, if there was something wrong, I, I said, if this isn't right, this guy's going to turn around and leave, like, before you can even look at him. So, I mean, I had this down. So I had people waiting. You know, this is like back then. I mean, how you would treat him at the most famous, I knew how to treat him with the most unfamous, <laughs> because he still would turn around and disappear. <laughs> So they got them in the front, and they were part of a great ovation, and we were hippies, right? So I was like, in hippie band clothes, like you would see, like a Wilco wear or any other, we don't even think twice about it, right? Mm -hmm. And um, he said, uh, is that stage clothes? I never, you know, in my life, you know, growing up, I mean, it's like, first of all, you can't afford anything, and you always think of the Beatles in suits and, you know, and all their cool stuff. But that was the Beatles. They could, you know, they could do whatever they want. But I never thought that you make something out of nothing, and that's what he could do. So all of a sudden, we're going to do this, and Gail, you're going to do this. And, you know, it was like Fredericks or Hollywood was the only place that had stuff in that, mm. what he was thinking for her and his idea of what women should wear. And Zoot Suits. And the movie Quadrophenia had a huge effect. So if you think about Quadrophenia, the mods and the rockers, there were, there were some trench coats in there. And again, there's pieces of the puzzle everywhere if you do the real deep dive. So there was a place called Tatters on Lindale, which was a used clothing stores. Uh, secondhand stuff was becoming hip, cool, all that stuff. And the suburbs were into zoot suits and all this stuff. And... He felt that I would gravitate to that direction, and you know, with Matt, you know, his personality and his his visual features, you know, it, it enabled comedic stuff. He started out in a jail suit, but Rick James had a jail suit, so they immediately moved to a doctor, which he still is today. And um, you know, Andre and Prince were were in Des. You know, I mean, Des had already been like a sex god, you know, rocker in a band called Revolver, and I just thought, you know, I told Prince, I said, that's our guy. But, you know, Des had his own opinions, too, and Andre had his own opinions, too. But I thought that front line, those three guys, would compliment Prince. I still think it's the greatest front line that's ever been in rock and roll. And I was really proud to be behind that, because they were just bad. So we were in tatters. We're, we're digging around in these used clothes, and we'd find these neckties that he would kind of tie and dickies and leather stuff from long ago, 40s, 50s, whenever, and they would get new life in his vision. And he found these, these kind of greenish, grayish trench coats, and he thought that the three up front are going to wear that. So it was kind of like there's the Beatles suits right there. You know, it's kind of the uniform is going to be this trench coat. And so that, that was Dirty Mind and Controversy. It was kind of a brownish one, you know, it was a different series of that coming from the same Tatters clothing store, Bins, and then he was putting studs on them. And by now he had women sewing, stuff being made for peanuts. But the fashion, you know, in his world, he was creating all this unbelievable stuff. And that all went for a couple of years. And then uh, we were going to shoot uh, some photos for 1999, and the videos for 1999 and Corvette. And uh, he walks into rehearsal and they brought it to him, kind of like this moment where, you know, all of a sudden, there it is, you know, this shiny 
purple trench coat, and he puts it on. He's like, all of a sudden, he's Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. I mean, he just came alive, and I just went, wow, we're going for, like, showbiz now. This is going to be a whole different direction. It's not going to be punk. You know, it'll be rebellious because he's always rebellious, but it's going to be glamorous. And the glamour came in and uh, never stopped, of course. He was one of the most glamorous characters that ever lived. Yeah. The wonderful thing about interviewing you is you've already answered like 80% of my questions. <laughs> well, we, we could go for about 10 hours if you want. So we kind of breezed past what actually happened at the Rolling Stones show, and I would love to just take you back there for a moment if you have any specific memories of that kind of experience of realizing that the crowd was not all in favor of what was happening. Well, when you start out, watching TV and your favorite musicians and you imitate them and you're a little kid, you get the drum set, get the guitar, and you, you're trying to emulate your favorite rock stars and you have bands and you go through it. It never, ever, ever, ever occurs to you. I did some rough stuff when I was, I used to go to the union and put my name up to substitute because, you know, that's how I got kind of versatile because you'd play with a polka band one night, the drummer was sick, and a six night a week club band one night. As long as you ended the song, you know, they thought you were great, you know. <laughs> and there was a couple of rough drunk, you know, over at Mr. Harry's, which is now BJ's on Broadway. Oh, wow. It was kind of a rough joint, and there was drunks crashing into the stage and stuff, but nothing, no anger towards the musicians. And so my point being is that you never, ever really ever think that anyone will be angry, like booing at an athletic event, like, you know, booing your team or booing someone off the stage, which you see in movies and TV and heard about throughout the ages, when you hear boos, it kind of shakes you to the core. And Prince was a controversial character, and, and whatever he did or didn't do, you just felt that he didn't deserve to be booed. He worked so hard, and music was what I thought was great. But then you add objects, projectiles on top of that, and it just, it really... It, it shook me to the point where I was literally shaking. And we couldn't really end the set. The, there was a huge stairway down, you know, red carpet back to the Stones Village and walked down it, all excited. You see these pictures that mm -hmm. we're all excited to play. It's a big moment. Band from Minneapolis, right? I mean, it's like growing up in St. Louis Park and south and north Minneapolis. I mean, it's a huge, huge, huge moment. And... You know, it ends in utter shambles and defeat. And then um, it was just kind of a loss for words. I've never seen him more petrified and sad. All of us. He took off right away. And, you know, Mick felt really bad. And Charlie Watson and Bill Wyman came and got us and talked to me for a while. And it really kind of calmed us down. And, I mean, if you're in Charlie Watts, you know, I mean, you just end up being a fan and you start, oh, you're Charlie Watts. You know? So, I mean, that, that was a good, it was like, don't worry about it. We were booed off. We reminisced about, I think, even here at uh, Danceland by, off Lake Minnetonka in Excelsior where they had a terrible start. And so they were telling us all their terrible start stories. And, and that's fine. You know, you're the Rolling Stones. You know, you just don't think that you can climb out of that. So they tear the whole thing down. And then there's a Rams game the next day at the Coliseum. Then they put the whole thing back up on Monday. And, you know, Prince went back to Minneapolis, and it was a whole song and dance. And it, it, it was supposed to be two shows in L.A. and then two in Detroit. And 
I just already knew that there's just no way it was going to continue. And the obligation to do the second show was tough. And obligations, as we know, for Prince were difficult. When he's forced, and this time he was forced, I mean, Mick and Dez, and they got him to come back. But that dressing room or whatever, that little tent, whatever that moment was before the second show, was like dead man walking. You know, you knew that it wasn't going to be better. What you didn't expect was the glee that people had read about the first show, and now they were prepared to throw it right off the get-go. So, I mean, now you're, you're out there and you're exposed in a way that was just chilling. And he was protected by God. Uh, his head ducked in an empty Jack Daniels bottle, just missed his head by about a quarter of an inch and crashed against the drum riser right in front of me. I remember Lisa looking at Lisa, and there was, you know, there was stuff crashing. And then I became like a goalie. And then the symbols were protectors at that point, where you're kind of moving from one side, just going, man, I hope I don't hit up. You know, your arms are busy. You know, hopefully you don't deflect anything. Des was great. Somebody threw a shoe up there. He put it in his mouth and, you know, shook it like a mad dog. And they liked that, you know, of course, yeah, you know, that's, they wanted blood. And Des didn't give him blood. He gave him rock and roll back. And that worked for a minute, you know, but they hit Mark, you know, square on the base head with an orange, knocked him out of tune. Uh, I think that was even the first show, like right away, you know, it was just vicious. And like I said, it doesn't matter how you ever prepare. I mean, you just, it's obviously we're still talking about this day. It's a pivotal moment. But in talking to Bill and, and Charlie Watts, you know, Wyman and Watts, now in retrospect, we're talking about after all of this success, the movie and everything later, it was a pivotal moment. And, and I think of what Charlie Watts said that, you know, shake it off, kid, you know, because we had it too. And you think of the Beatles in Hamburg, you know, how that must have been. Everybody's got a beginning. You know, it's like people think, oh, somebody's so famous. But, you know, it's different. You know, now you can go on TV and be instantly famous. But to earn it the way Prince did it, brick by brick, moment by moment, this is a key moment of growth, strength, knowledge, defeat that you have to have in this story to relish the victory later. Jumping ahead to more exciting times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the 1999 tour, um, I have heard that Prince was not only playing his own sets, but would sometimes secretly be playing along with Vanity Six in the time. Is that true? Well, of, of course, there was the one time when Jimmy and Terry didn't make the gig. Right. But he, he the time would play, they would back up Vanity Six. And depending on the night, he could always plug his guitar in. He would always be goofing around. And from time to time, he'd, he'd kind of come in and, and add a part. But if he did, I mean, you, you, the guitar playing was, you know, you'd know the rhythm right away. I mean, it, it the whole Frankenstein's monsters of, of the time in Vanity Six is, you know, that he, he created his own review, like a Motown review did. So he created this review. And to have all these people wear what you want and, do what you want and play what you want was a testament to his ability to control a lot of people, as we know. So he would he would hop up and he was always goofing around with Jerome, and so he would tell Jerome to go do this or you know do something on stage, or so he could get a laugh out of it. You know, it was all comedic. The time was kind of comic relief for him, and whether they felt the same or not, I don't know. But 
we were all kind of um, creations in this play that went out every night. And so he would always be doing something. I mean, for the most part, he took our show pretty seriously. So I, I remember like 90% of the time he would go watch them and, and say they kicked our ass, you know, but it's the music he created. was kind of getting himself psyched up to do that. But if you watch the video in 1999 Deluxe, I mean, that gives you a, a vocally... And his stage presence and beginning to start to move and command the stage, you know, you, you get a feel for how tight the band was and ultimately how amazing the show was. But what you really come away with was the vocals that, that he could shriek and scream and hit these notes that were just mind-boggling every night, every night. I was talking to Matt Fink about his memories of this era, well, and just his whole experience. And, you know, he said occasionally there would be times where, you know, you guys would go back and review the videotapes and maybe Prince would... Occasionally? <laughs> I'm saying occasionally <laughs> he would find that Prince had maybe done something he didn't mean to do, played a, a different note on the guitar or keyboard or something, but that he never heard him hit a wrong note vocally, that it was always just spot on. That's right. Uh, and we're talking about, from for me pretty much 77, 78 on, because, I mean, you would get a rough take or a take, but it was never, you know, like the way we consider, oh, that was terrible, let me try it again. He had a mastery of his voice. In the early days, he had two boom boxes, and they were recordable when they first came out, so he would be sitting in the apartment, and he would record stereo and then he'd take another boom box and then he'd record into that one and overdub and then he recorded that one so it created a lot of hiss but if you hear some of these early demos i mean the vocal stacking is impeccable so his ability to hear himself and hear the notes no matter how loud or where you were in any small room or arena he knew where he was at pitch wise and he knew where you were at rhythm wise or keyboard-wise, or guitar-wise, just the uncanny ability to, to hear the music and where he was in the music is a real incredible... There's probably only one person that's ever done it, and that's him. You know, just the ability to hear it all in his head. You know, if you think back, like Beethoven and Mozart and stuff, they hear all this stuff in their head because they had to write it out. This is for the cello, this is for the bassoon. This was all in their head. They didn't have any way to do that. In a way, he was doing that. It was just more modern with a tape machine, but he was hearing all the music in the head like Beethoven or some of these other classical musicians who had parts and choirs going on in their head. He was kind of reborn in all these characters throughout the ages in him, and that's what makes it hauntingly unique to this day when you think about it. It's just not like anything you've ever experienced as a musician. Just thinking about, you know, as we're looking back now that this box set's coming out, I mean, what do you think is the legacy of, of 1989? It's a big general question, but what are your thoughts? Well, it's certainly the timing of it with MTV, the guts of a double album, the bold initiative of that alone. I'm sure he, you know, Warner Brothers is like a double album. It's the beginning of more than you can handle. It's the beginning of... I'm, I've got more than just me and me, you know, here's this and that and this. But also, melodically, you know, he was starting to get incredibly gifted with, like, International Lover and the messaging of who he was and being able to communicate with, like, DMSR, 
dance music, sex romance, you know, it's, it's just like one of those expressions that just rolls off the tongue, but it's just such a funky song. And he was really relating to people in a way that he knew he could lead them, which we eventually know in Purple Rain, you know, you say you want a leader, you better make up your mind and close it and let me guide you to the Purple Rain. He, he became a leader in 1999. I already, you know, knew he was a leader, but the rest of the world... You know, I mean, when he started, you know, like I said, you know, there's, there's a growth. He went from a caterpillar to a butterfly in that one purple trench coat that we talk about. And he became the international superstar that was able to convince Warner Brothers Pictures and a bunch of people that he was a bankable star and a real personality. And the humor, I think, in 1999, too, there's a lot of fun stuff and the iconic look of the photos the album cover, the hint, and again, the tidbit puzzle of the revolution backwards. It's all there. It's all a setup for what's to come. And it, it's an honor to be a part of that. That thing is just, uh, it's a monster. It's a monster. What's it like for you now to see, you know, the music videos and think like, wow, I was on MTV? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, videos like Uptown and 1999 and Corvette, during that time, we shot at the Armory, um, Let's Pretend Married, Corvette, 1999, and Automatic. And it was just an intense three-day shoot to get as much as we could. Automatic was this kind of this big time-to-the-bed thing with Wendy and Lisa, and it was, um, again, he was pushing the norms and challenging. And um, he wanted people to come into his world and his kind of erotic freedom and funky liberation and all this stuff. And when you see those videos now, I think they age well. I think that he meticulously worked so hard on stuff. And you, you just, back then, you just couldn't believe the hours and the effort you went into it. And rehearsal, you know, I tell the story of, you know, rehearsal so grinding and so long. But when you got in front of 20, 30, 40, 80,000 people, you're glad you had it. It's like a professional sports routine. Catching a fly ball is routine, but, you know, catching 10 million of them will make sure that you catch that one, you know. So the discipline, the musical discipline was seen in those videos. And that's why I think they hold up, you know. I think they do. Thanks so much, Bobby. You're welcome. I think I literally could interview you for like a whole day. Yeah, we could, <laughs> we could just keep going. Like, gone with the wind. We'll have intermission. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. You can find the complete four-part series, Prince, the story of 1999, wherever you get your podcasts.